The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So today is about technology and social media, how we have become so connected that we're disconnected. And my goal, surprisingly, is not to bash technology. That's not what I'm going to do today. Uh, I think technology is a gift from God. And I think it's this common grace at work among uh, humanity. Exhibit A would be Gary has benefited well from technology the last couple of few years. So I thank God for technology. Technology is a gift from God. For our purposes today, I'm going to define technology more broadly than how you might think of it. Technology is the reordering of raw materials for human purposes. So when you get with that basic of a definition, it, this goes back centuries, thousands of years, where we would say mankind has participated in making technology. In fact, uh, you know, Jesus was a carpenter when he was on earth, and the Greek word for carpenter is tekton, where we get the word for technology, tekton, technology. And so I'm not here to bash technology, but we have to face what I think it's doing to us and how it's changing us, especially as we think of technology today. Now, when I was given this topic, I was thinking, what passage should I use? So I landed on Psalm 46. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 46, and we're going to read this without having words on the screen, old school style, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. So I want to ask the question, what what did this psalm mean for Israel? We don't know the original situation for this psalm, but the big theme as you look at the passage is really God's presence. And I think in verse 1, we get a very personal picture of God in verse 1. That he is this ever-present. There's an immediacy that you sense in, in verse 1, where God is, is truly this ever-present help in time of trouble. And so we see that in verse 1, this very personal picture of God. Then you move into verses 2 and 3, and it sounds like it's describing an earthquake. But this is not a literal earthquake. This is a picture of Israel being surrounded by turbulence, chaos. The nations are raging all around Uh, the nation of Israel. But in the chaos, there is a city called Jerusalem. In that city, there's a place called the temple. And for the Jew, this place was very special. Now, there's nothing magical about large stones or curtains or wash basins or altars. What makes the temple so special is the presence of God. So I want you to see the contrast between 
this temple mount, as it's described in Psalm 46, and what surrounds Jerusalem. And again, this is very symbolic. Instead of the roaring sea, which is on the outside, there is this calm and peaceful river that symbolizes God's peace, his tranquility, and his provision for his people. As Jerusalem is surrounded by chaos, the people of God have stability. As they think about God's presence, as it relates to the temple there in Jerusalem, and they will not be moved. When they consider all the chaos around them, they might get tempted towards unholy alliances, relying on their own strength and giving themselves over to idolatry. If you look at verse 8, we're told, they're told to remember all of God's work of salvation. And then if they remember the past of what God's done in the past, that will lead to verse 10, where it says, be still and know that he's God. They can be still and trust that he's God because of what they know, how God's provided for them in the past. So what are the points of contact with this psalm and our topic today? I want to put on the screen for you just verses 1 to 3 and also verse 6, so you can see that there on the screen. And as Israel's surrounded by all this chaos... Our world doesn't feel that much different. And very often, as I read the passage this week, you get this image of of Israel looking around them and seeing all this turbulence and chaos around Jerusalem and Israel. And I started thinking about how fitting that is for us today. We see so much turbulence and chaos around us, and this is the window through which we view most of it. How we use this thing rarely leads to peace, tranquility, and rest. Usually leads to fear, anger, unholy alliances, putting our trust in the wrong people and things. If you look at verse 6, it says, the nations rage. If there's any place that we see the nations rage or people rage, it is through this little window right here. We see it everywhere. Now, wait to remember, this whole chapter is about the realness of God's presence, Psalm 46. There might not be anything detracting more from that reality than the device that you have in your purse or in your pocket right now. I love this quote from John Piper. He says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. I'll just let that kind of sit on us for a minute, Right? Now, I want you to know today, I'm not, gonna, I'm, not judging, I'm not standing up here judging you today. I want you to see this. Do you know what four hours and 16 minutes is? That was average daily phone use, average daily phone use last week for me. And my, my phone has this uh, screen time app tracking those kinds of things, and I checked it, and I go in and I tell my wife what it was, And I actually tried to get it down before I preached this message. It didn't work out too well. And I go tell my wife what my average time was last week. And my son is sitting there and he says, he says, uh, um, he says, it's okay, dad. An hour of that was probably my sister and I playing video games, which I took to mean, don't worry, you're not as bad of a father as you think you are. So that's my average daily use last week, 475. What is that? Number of times I picked up my phone last week. 
How do I know? I have an app that tells me it's not like I counted, right? So everything I'm going to say today, I am with you. I am preaching this sermon to myself as much as I am to you this morning. And as I said, my goal is not to bash technology. I think it's a gift from God. I think God wants us to, we need, we need godly people in the tech sector. We do. So I thank God for technology. But I just want to talk to you today about how it can affect us, especially in our families, but also in the church. So I think we can't deny that technology has the power to shape relationships. There's always this trade-off with technology. As we change technology, technology changes us. And we can't avoid that reality, no matter what the technology is. So take, for example, the car. How has the car shaped relationships? If someone cuts you off in traffic, we know you're going to be at least tempted to shout some choice words or give the Texas one-finger wave. And so you, you know that that's a temptation that we all struggle with. But if someone does that on the sidewalk, we don't react that way. I mean, in New York City, they probably do, but not so much here in Texas. So the car has this way of insulating us. We don't see these real faces and real people. We just see them as faceless cars moving down the road. And yet we react this way because we're insulated. And so technology can change how we relate to people. How about this one? When it comes to the phone, have you ever called or texted someone and they're not immediately available? And so you start to get a little bit angry? Happened to you before? Happens to me all the time. Or someone's trying to get a hold of me, and I just, when I finally call back or text back, it's like, where were you? And because of the immediacy of the phone, there's an expectation that you're always available, and if you're not, there's some anger involved sometimes. So it can change how we relate. This became really apparent to me whenever I was talking to the guy who does Young Life here in Temple and Belton, my friend Tucker Morrow, and he shared with me recently that he was playing going to have lunch with some guys and then play video games afterwards. And he said, after lunch, I said, okay, whose house are we going to to play video games? And they looked at him funny and they said, we don't, we don't go to the same house. Like I go to my house. I like my controller. He likes his television. He goes to his house. And so Tucker has to decide which kid he's going to go join at his house on his couch while they all play virtually through the internet together games. And they're messaging back and forth. And so you can see how technology has changed how we relate to each other. I think it's especially affecting the younger generation. Because of the digital world, they not only have to manage real life, but they have this whole other second world they have to manage now. If you remember your time in high school and junior high, the the most difficult part of the day might be the cafeteria where you walk in and you've got to find a place to sit or who you're going to sit with. And you've got to navigate some, social, some, some awkward social situations when you're in high school and junior high. And this was the real world. And you have to manage the real world. But now they have to manage this other world, the second world, a digital world. James K. Smith says this next statement. The home was a space to let down your guard, freed from the perpetual gaze of your peers, you could almost forget yourself. You could at least forget how gawky, pimpled, and weird you were, freed from the competition that characterizes teenagedom, no longer. The space of the home has been punctured by the intrusion of social media, 
such that the competitive world of self-display and self-consciousness is always with us. There is no escape. Home used to be a refuge away from all of that pressure, and yet now the home has been punctured by this reality, this digital reality. And it's why many are so anxious and why many are so fretful and worried. In his book, Tony Ranke talks about how the phone has changed us. There's a great, I highly recommend this book. It's a great read on, it's not just a practical how-to. This is a very Bible-driven, theologically-driven book on how things have changed in our culture today. And he does not bash technology. The whole opener of his book is this great introduction into how technology is God's design. But we've got to learn to live with it and be discerning as we navigate these waters so one of his, we're going to cover not 12, we're going to cover just four of his points from his book. The first one is we get lonely. We are more connected but more disconnected than ever before. And it's leading to great loneliness, I think, in our culture today. This has been called the loneliest generation, even more so than the elderly. The younger generation is called, by people that study these things, the loneliest generation. So people that are at the prime, should be at the prime of their socializing and making friendships, they're being called the loneliest generation because they're seeking connection but not finding it as they just stay connected on their devices. Part of it, I think, comes from we're always seeing what we're missing out on. You could be in Hawaii on vacation and see on social media what your friends in Central Texas are doing and somehow you be jealous of them. Because you want to be with them. You're missing out. And so we're always aware now of what we're missing out on. And it doesn't provide the connection that we, we think we need. But it's not just this that isolates us and makes us lonely. There is, if you look at any technology, technology always leads to more isolation. There's a guy named Giles Slade who wrote a book called The Big Disconnect, The Story of Technology and Loneliness. In his book, he writes about like street vendors, and how that gave way to vending machines. And how milk used to be delivered to your house. Who remembers those days? Oh, a few of you. All right. But there was an interaction. Like you had to talk to someone as someone dropped off milk at your house. Now you can go to the store because of refrigeration. Get it out of the refrigerator. You can go to the self-checkout and avoid any contact with anybody today. And so you can just walk through life intentionally avoiding people because of technology. He also talks about how bankers gave way to ATMs. There's this app on my phone that will allow me to deposit a check in the bank without even going to the bank, and I just don't trust it. <laughs> Something in me is like, no, I, gotta, I need to go to the bank and like put it. I want to see them put it in the vault. I want to watch it. I don't trust it. But there's ways you can avoid interacting with people. We have, they're all, all across our culture. He also talks about the fireplace, how the fireplace used to be this communal place in a home. Maybe you had one or two fireplaces in your house, and that was a place that was warm, so you would all kind of gather there, and you would not be in other rooms of the house as much because you're in the place where it's warm, and, and central heating pushes heat to every corner of the house, and now you can be wherever you want. You don't need to be in the same room as everybody else. So any kind of technology has a way of pushing us further into isolation from each other, not just the things that we think of 
as technology. Now listen, I'm not saying we're supposed to go, we should go back to smoke signals and carrier pigeons. I'm not trying to regress, but I, I just think we've got to understand how it's affecting us and how it has affected us. One of the craziest examples I heard recently, China has these apps where women date imaginary boyfriends. It's part game and part role play. You can choose to date characters in the game. And they'll send you personal text messages like it's real life. Like you wake up and there's a message from your imaginary boyfriend saying good morning. There was one woman who took out an ad, $40,000 as an LED billboard, wishing her imaginary boyfriend happy birthday. And so this is not a dating app. There you date the app. It's crazy. People use this device to quell loneliness and yet end up lonelier than ever. Tony Ranke says, the smartphone is causing a social reversal, the desire to be alone in public and never alone in seclusion. When in public, this thing becomes our security blanket. We, whenever alone, we seek connection, but it's a fake connection, it's not real. And so I think we have it reversed, we have it backwards. We need to learn how to connect in public, but be able to reflect in solitude and be still and alone and be okay with that. I heard a quote yesterday. We are the most over-informed but under-reflective generation in history. And it's not, I mean, do you, do you feel that? Do you feel that whenever you run to this thing, there's a sense of, I don't feel as reflective I don't feel like I have much to offer in conversation because I'm just so just tied up in this thing and what's going on out there. And I think if you look at Psalm 46, it opens up with God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But so often this becomes our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In Psalm 46, there is an immediacy that you hear in the words of the passage where God is immediately available for his people. And yet so often we just ignore that because we go to these devices. We are losing our ability to connect, I think not just with each other, but also with God. Charles Spurgeon, the great Charles Spurgeon said this, permit not your minds to be easily distracted or you will often have your devotion destroyed. And he said this back in a day when there weren't the same kinds of distractions we have today. They still had distractions, not the same kind that we have today. I don't know when you spend time with God, but we have to fight for it. Might be surprising to you, but someone like myself who's in vocational full-time ministry, I struggle with it. But I'm learning I've got to fight for it. I've got to fight for that kind of time. And if I don't fight for it, I'm going to lose. We have to recapture solitude and reflection, prayer, reading the scriptures, And the problem for many of us is that social media is our morning devotional. Like if you put this thing next to your bed as your alarm clock, just some advice, go buy an alarm clock and charge your phone somewhere else in the house. But if it's next to your, usually the first thing you do is you're checking social media, you're checking what's going on in the world, you're checking the weather, you got to know what to wear, right? So you're checking these things, we get so caught up in these distractions, In his book, Tony Ranke, I love this equation. He says, isolation 
plus feeding on vanity, which most of social media is, equals soul-starving loneliness. Isolation isn't the problem. It's what we do there. And he follows it up by saying this, isolation plus communion with God equals soul-feeding solitude. We have to learn how to recapture solitude and being able to come before God with our own thoughts and feelings and desires and, and commune with God. And so we can't, the idea is not just to be not isolated, but when you are isolated, what are you doing with it? Does it lead to soul-feeding solitude? We've got to protect our alone time so we can bring something to the table when we are with other people. Again, do you find in yourself, when you get so frenzied and and just always checking and, and checking on this other world, the digital world, that whenever you are in a group of people, don't you feel relationally dumber? I know I do. I feel like I have nothing to offer, like I've got nothing to say. Because I'm just taking all this stuff in. And it may not be necessarily bad content, but it's just, it's just frivolous. And it can stunt us spiritually, I think. We've got to learn how to be people that know how to handle solitude with God. So we become, we get lonely. We get harsh. We become harsh to one another. I've seen so many sad displays of people in our church and even beyond just going at it on social media over politics, cultural issues, theology, and it just really saddens me. We just throw, we just throw digital grenades at people and certain people groups, and then we just go and hide behind a screen. Now, have you ever seen someone change their mind after reading someone's rant on social media? Have you ever seen anybody say, you know, I used to believe this, but then I saw your eloquent, grace-filled display of words on social media, and now I believe this. Have you ever seen that happen? I've never seen that happen. Usually what happens is the amen corner, where you get all the people that agree with you already will just shout out amen. That's right, you tell them. And you feel better about yourself. And then we just have this way of curating and making ourselves feel like we're always right. And so I've never seen that happen in real life. And in written word, I think we tend to be harsher. It's why Paul, whenever Paul was writing a tough letter to a group of people, he would often say things like, I long to see you face to face. I know I've said some hard things to the Galatians or to the Corinthians, but I long to see you face to face because if I saw you face to face, I could tell you how much I love you. Because Paul knew that face-to-face was better, and he could express himself more clearly, because written word always feels harsher. And the same goes for how we handle social media. We become harsh to each other. We are addicted to distraction. Now, I know that you know we're distracted, but what you may not know is how intentional all of it is. These companies are intentional at getting you addicted to things. I can't pronounce this guy's name, but he wrote a book called How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and he does conferences for Silicon Valley companies where they pay $1,700 per person to learn how to get people hooked 
on a device or an app. And so it's not just us. Like, I know that you just thought you were lazy, but it's actually designed that way. It's designed to hook you in and to draw you in and become addicted to these things. In his book, he says, feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, and indecisiveness often instigate a slight pain or irritation and prompt an almost instantaneous and often mindless action to quell the negative sensation. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe your phone is away from you, and you're in a situation and you just feel this sense of irritation or boredom, and the first thing you want to go to is just go to the, go to the device, go to the phone, and you think, it's just, that's just what I do. You're not, you're not thinking deeply about it. But did you know there are people like him who are intentionally doing that to you, trying to make it so that you will do these things, and this is how you'll carry out your life. If, if you're a parent and, and you want your student to see what's really happening behind the curtain, you need to have this conversation. And not just make it about, like, here's the rule, but pull the curtain back and say, this is what these companies are trying to get you to do. Last time I checked, teenagers don't like when they're the victim of something. If you can show them how they're a victim, you might have a way in to some real conversations about how they're utilizing social media and their phones. The next person here is Justin Rosenstein, formerly of Facebook. Doesn't he look like a tech guy? I think he looks like a tech guy. Formerly of Facebook, and this is the guy that designed the like button for Facebook. And then he quit. He quit Facebook. I didn't know there was a guy who designed the like button for Facebook. I thought Facebook was born with the like button. But he quit Facebook because he saw the addictive nature of social media. Someone like him, who's helped create the monster, is walking around malls, walking through restaurants, and they see mom ignoring dad. They see dad ignoring the kids. They see the kids in their own little world. And just imagine how someone like him feels when he sees the things that he has created causing all this disconnection. And so he just threw in the towel and he quit. He now dislikes the like button. (laughs) So we have Justin Rosenstein. Then we have this next person, Josh Rosner, who's my cousin. He went to Yale, then he worked at Google for a while, and he was assigned to YouTube. And when he was first working at Google, I'd see him at family holidays, and I would say, hey, Josh, like, how's the job? I mean, you're working at Google. This is like, you've arrived. This is the company that everyone wants to work for. How do you like working at Google? And he'd be like, ah, it's, it's okay. I was like, don't you guys ride scooters all day and have fun and see lots and lots of bright colors? And he said, it's okay. And I said, why, why do you say that? And he said, well, my job is to work on YouTube And he said, my job is to help people get more addicted to YouTube. You ever notice when you're on YouTube and you see, you watch one video, you never can just watch one video, right? There's another one, another one. You can blame him for things like that. He said the goal for YouTube was they wanted to have one billion hours viewed daily worldwide to generate ad revenue. And then once they reached it, was that enough? No. Then it became $2 billion. 
And so there's this hamster wheel just churning. And so people like my, my cousin, they quit. He quit on the whole thing because he saw the addictive nature of what he was a part of. So I think we're being used. Companies, they prey on human weakness for their gain. I think we see how it affects our kids. This, this kind of addiction can kill creativity and imagination. Recently, my daughter and I went to Panera Bread. I take her there on, on some Mondays after school, and I can do some work, and then she can do some homework. And she was, we have a rule in our family, like no, social, like no phone stuff or no digital stuff during the week. And so she finished her homework, and she said, she says, Dad, can I have your phone to play some games? And I said, I said no, you know the rule. It's Monday. You're not going to do that today. And she's like, but I'm just, I'm bored. I need something to do. And I said, well, go get some paper and some pencils and draw some pictures. You like to draw? And she goes, okay. So she goes and gets her stuff and she comes back to the table. And 30 minutes later, I look over and she has drawn this six-page book with pictures. I'm going to show you some of these pictures. Is that okay? Can I show you some of these? So she draws this as the first page. And here's the title of the story. Fairy Mermaids and the Flutter Flip Club. (laughs) And then picture number two. Here's how it goes. Once upon a time, a tiny village named Flipper Flutter had tiny fairies. Wait, not just fairies, but fairy mermaids. (laughs) They laughed and played all day long. There were three tiny fairies named Coral, Splash, and Flipper. And then this is page three. And this thing went on for six pages. And she's like, Daddy, I finished my book. <laughs> and I looked at her and I, this is like the ultimate I told you so moment as a father. And I looked at her and I said, Sienna? I said, see? I said, if I'd given you the phone, we wouldn't get fairy mermaids. <laughs> this world needs fairy mermaids, my friends. Yes. So for our young minds, this addiction has a way of killing imagination. And so we have this way of getting, we get, a, we, we get addicted to distraction. And then lastly, we ignore our flesh and blood. The last few years, I have noticed the shift in ministry, especially in youth ministry. When students arrive, if their friends aren't there, what, they, they pull aside with their phone, it's like, I, I, can't, I can't go in unless I know my friend is here with me. And so they're going to text their friend, and they're going to be off in the corner looking like they're doing something really, really important before they can go inside any event that we're going to have. And they're waiting for someone that they know to arrive. And so, you know, God forbid you've got to walk up to someone and have a real conversation with someone you don't know. But I'll often see, even when students do show up, I'll see students gather around a table on Wednesday or Sunday, and they'll all be on their phones. Or the conversations might be, you know, hey, look at this. Look what they posted. And it's just, that's the extent of the conversation. And so when they're together, they're not really together. And not only are they disconnected when they're together, they're together less often. Jean Twenge, in her book, iGen, said the numbers are stunning. 12th graders in 2015 are going out less often than 8th graders did as recently as 2009. 18-year-olds are now going out less often than 14-year-olds did just six years prior. And I noticed this shift about four years ago. 
the biggest obstacle, one of the biggest obstacles for youth ministry is just getting students to want to leave the house. If you invite students and, they, and you say, hey, come, come be with us, they will say, well, well who's going to be there? You. <laughs> come be with us. Come be with us. And, I mean, why should they leave the house? They've got the whole world in their pocket. They've got all they want at their disposal. And it's not just affecting the church, it's affecting all social interaction. Listen to this high school student. I feel like we don't party as much. People stay in more often. My generation lost interest in socializing in person. They don't have physical get-togethers. They just text together, and they can just stay at home. Parents, if your kids want to stay home more and more, it's not just your kids. It's an epidemic. If you've noticed your kids having trouble connecting, it's not just your kids. I think it's an epidemic at this point. This one girl, a junior hire, we grew up with iPhones. We don't know how to communicate like normal people and look people in the eye and talk with them. Sometimes it makes us like aliens. We don't know how to talk to people anymore. Jean Twenge in her book iGen goes on to say, this generation might know the right emoji for a situation but not the right facial expression. So there's this disconnect happening. The really good news, though, is last year on our New York City mission trip, I really challenged our students. I said, listen, trips like this, you're meant to make connection with each other. You're meant to build lifelong friendships. So I'm going to challenge you guys at mealtimes, put your phones away and just be with each other and connect and have conversations. And the really cool thing was they did it. It was amazing to watch. There were more like deep conversations on that trip than any previous trip combined. And it was amazing to watch. So I think when they understand what's happening behind the curtain, they'll start to understand, no, that's not the kind of life I want to live. And so I think it's encouraging when they start to understand those kinds of things. So we have a tendency to ignore our flesh and blood. And if we're going to be the church, we cannot ignore our flesh and blood. Christianity has always been a flesh and blood religion. Jesus came in the flesh to be with us and spilled his blood for us. He calls us to be with one another, real flesh and real blood. I love that this is a Sunday where we partake in communion. If anything depicts the, the broken body and the blood of Jesus, the real broken body and real blood of Jesus, supposed to be communion. We're supposed to remember him that way. Real flesh, real blood. And this is what the church is called to. We are called not to live out some disembodied existence as the church. We're called to see each other face-to-face, real life, real flesh, and real blood. That's always been the mission of the church. He's given us baptism, communion. These things cannot be done on a screen. They're supposed to be done physical, real life. It's why Hebrews 10 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Real community has to always be physical flesh and blood. And so we cannot ignore our flesh and blood. 
I want to take you again back to Psalm 46, verse 10, where it says, Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. There is this connection between being still and knowing who God is. I think we have to relearn what it means to be still, to quiet our minds, to still our hearts, to still our souls before God. And when we do this, it leads to knowing who God is. It also implies that when we're not still, we forget who God is. I think we lack stillness. I think we lack the ability to quiet our minds and still our hearts and still our souls before God, knowing how to be in solitude before him. We've got to learn how to foster that. So whenever we repent, it should always lead to real life change in practical ways. Anyone here ever been to Magnolia Table in Waco, Chip and Joanna Gaines? I just got all the ladies' attention right there. I've never been because I'm a dude, (laughs) and I would never admit such a thing. But they had these things I've heard at their tables, these little leather pouches, and the purpose of them is when you come there, they're encouraging you to put your devices in the leather pouch so you can really connect with people whenever you're eating at their restaurant. And I love that idea. So one of the things we do in our family is we don't ever want to have phones out at the dinner table or any meal table for that matter. Date nights, we try to have phones completely away from us and just talk to each other we, I try to take some sabbaticals from phones. So Saturday, sometimes I'll have leaders that will text me questions on Saturday, and I don't get to it for a while, and they just need to deal with it. <laughs> but it happens. And so take sabbaticals from your devices. Other examples, charging your phone in the other room. I don't use it as my, I have an alarm clock, an old school Alarm clock with a big fat snooze button on it. And so get an alarm clock. Charge your phone in the other room. These are practical things. So I've given you some practical, but I want to give some theological. Because doing practical stuff isn't enough if you don't do it for theological reasons. We have to recognize the deeper stuff going on as we chase these likes and self-exaltation. In his book, This Is Our Time by Trevin Wax, he says... There's a longing that we're trying to fill whenever we chase after these kinds of things. We want to be known and loved. This is really what's behind um, our desire to put ourselves out there in this way on social media. He says that God has given us this desire to be known, but you and I feel insecure because we know that we're sinners. And so online we present what we want other people to see. Then he goes on to say, that our online presence becomes like digital fig leaves, trying to display our greatness while hiding our brokenness. But here's the really good news. This longing is ultimately met in the gospel. And so he says, when you understand the light of the gospel, that God fully knows and yet still loves us, it can change how you relate to technology. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the beauty of the gospel is that we can step into the light knowing that we are fully known and fully 
loved. And in the end, we don't have to live for likes because we already live from love. Father, we're thankful that you show us the longing beneath all of our fixations and desires that we have on this earth. There is always something in us that's looking for you. And God, I pray for each one of us, myself included, that we would understand what's happening behind the curtain so that we, we, can, we can be in solitude with you the way that you want us to be and be present with others the way that you want us to be, real flesh and real blood, just like you were. We thank you and praise you. Amen. Have a great week.